This morning, I invite you, if you've probably already turned there, if you'd like to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. So this morning, we're going to continue uh, by starting up in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 10 at least this morning, and we'll do a little bit of review, but let's read God's Word. I'm going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 and read through verse 11. Peter wrote, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And we must read verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pause and pray one more time to ask God's help that his word would profit our souls this morning. God, we are frightened that in this world of unbelief, evidence is abundant that the sinful human heart can be so hardened that we can be dull to the most plain reasoning of your word. So it's in light of this that we pause and humbly call upon God and your spirit who gave this word to once again, as you are so kind to do, to make your word written by Peter almost 2,000 years ago very clear to us this morning. And more than just explaining the meaning of the text, that that meaning then would be fleshed out in our lives 
living godly lives of expectancy, waiting for the coming of Christ. So do your work this morning, we pray humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. This whole section, again, is Peter's response to the mockery of false teachers and others in verse 4, who openly ask, where is the promise of his, that is, God or Jesus' coming? They are those who hold to a philosophy of uniformity, meaning that things are the way that they have been, the things the way they are is the way that they always will be. They are trying to take bits and pieces of the Bible, bits and pieces of the Christian gospel, and steal from it and to somehow use it to live lives of, of ungodliness. These false teachers and those increasingly who are listening to them are abusing the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and they're turning it into an excuse for living a worldly life, an ungodly life. They do this, says Peter, verse 3 of chapter 3, following after their own lusts. If you want to live for you, if you just want to do whatever your heart wants you to do, you wants to do it's a very convenient line of reasoning that there's no judgment coming, that Jesus actually is never going to physically return to this earth, and that this whole business about the day of the Lord and wrath and judgment and fire, that's a bunch of um, hyperbole. And that's very convenient because then God is far off and distant. He may have established the world and got it going He may have established some general boundaries that are between right and wrong. But if there's no judgment, if there's no second coming, and you can somehow have the grace of the gospel, then you can live your life now however you want, and you're covered. This is a twisted, evil perversion of the biblical gospel. And it is a form of the gospel that is alive and well in our day. In fact, if one of the marks or the indicators of this kind of teaching is that there's a mocking of or an absence of teaching on the second coming of Christ, then certainly we are living in a time in which we ought to be listening. The emphasis in this whole passage is on the certain second coming of Christ, the the reality of, of regardless of the timing The reality of the Bible's teaching that the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, incarnate, in flesh, glorified, that he who came the first time is going to return. David's son is going to come and reign on this earth. And he's going to come and God is going to purge this earth of evil and of wickedness. God is going to triumph over all those who are raised up in defiance against him. Peter is urging the believers who receive this letter to hold fast to the word of God and the promises of God. He says up in chapter 3, verse 2, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. In other words, 
Peter is emphasizing this teaching about the, the certain coming of Christ and of the coming of judgment of the day of the Lord. It's not just one small allusion here or there in the Bible, but it spans the teaching of both the Old Testament prophets all the way through the apostles in what we call now the New Testament. Pay attention to it. And as believers in whatever age you're living in, live your life in the shadow of the certainty of the coming of the judgment of God upon this earth and of the reign of Christ. You live as a believer in such a way that Lord Jesus could come at any time for you and that these things, in fact, will unfold on the earth. And you want to live in such a way that when he comes, you will not be ashamed but will have been found to be faithful and true, a true servant. So Peter is exposing why this line of thinking, this line of disbelief, this line of mocking is, is foolish and folly. We looked at the first three reasons, again, three or four weeks ago. Quickly, let me just point them out to you. In verse 5, Peter says, when they maintain this, this idea that God's not, Jesus isn't coming back. Things are going to continue just as they have. He says it escapes their notice, and he is being sarcastic there. Yes, the apostle is mocking the mockers. These guys who are so boastful, so certain, so full of themselves, he says it escapes their notice. In other words, this is very plain and obvious. What's plain and obvious? First, the same word that promises the second coming. In other words, the same word that God spoke about the second coming of his son is the same word, the word of the mouth of God, by which the whole heavens and earth were created the first time. So if God spoke and there was light, if God spoke and there was heavens and there was earth, and these false teachers aren't doubting that, they're standing on the earth, they're looking up at the sky, they seem to believe in reality... They believe that by God's word, he created the heavens and the earth. Then why would they doubt that the same word that created the heavens and the earth can't declare judgment coming in the second coming? It's the same word. Secondly, he points out, Peter points out, that the same water in verse 5 and 6 with by which God formed the earth, God in some way formed the earth using water. Of course, he spoke the entire creation into existence, and so water is one of those aspects of creation. But God somehow used creation, we learn in the opening chapter of Genesis, to form the earth. And it's with that same water that God formed the earth, and no one doubts that the earth exists. It's the same water by which God flooded the earth in Noah's day. In other words, these false teachers, Peter's saying, you don't doubt that there's an actual heavens and earth, and you don't doubt, apparently, that God flooded the earth. Well, get a clue. God used the same water. God can use the same word to create the earth that he could use to bring his son back. And thirdly, verse 7, the same word, by his word, God's word, the same word that currently sustains the earth and the heavens. We learn in Colossians that, that Christ himself upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ, one with God the Father and the Spirit. 
That same word by which God and Christ sustains the present heavens and earth is the same word that's reserving the current heavens and earth, verse 7, for a day of judgment and destruction of godly men. So you're enjoying and I'm enjoying the sustaining power of the word of God. But that word that can sustain and keep the universe together at present is in a future day going to unleash judgment on this earth. And so it's just, Peter's just pointing out that the mockery of the false teachers is unreasonable. It's irrational. It breaks down within its own framework. It's illogical. They're, escape, they're, they're failing to notice some of the most obvious truths concerning God's word. Fourthly, this morning, we come to verse 8. We're looking at reasons why the mocking of the false teachers is bankrupt. It's foolish. It ought to be avoided. Don't, if you're a believer, do not give in to the spirit of the age. Don't give in to the lie that somehow Christ isn't coming. Don't give in to the lie that there isn't judgment coming. You keep holding fast to the promises of God in his word. Because, verse 8, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. And I just pause there to remind you that this is an expression of Peter's pastoral heart. And that these believers to whom he's writing, he loves them, but more importantly, God loves them. Which means, believers, this morning God loves you. This is not just a cold, rational argument. This is God's heart for you as believers, Christ's sheep. He cares for you. He's concerned for you in the present day and age of mocking and of ridicule and of dismissing of the judgment of God and the coming of Christ. You're loved. You're not left. As you learned last week, you are adopted in love. You are beloved of the Father and of the Son. Do not let this fact escape your notice then, beloved. And here's the fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The fourth reason, or the truth that we ought to consider, that undermines the lies of the false teachers is this the eternality of the Lord the eternality of the Lord or if you want a big theological term the omnitemporality of the Lord and that's good uh, I had to look that up by the way um, omnitemporality and, and that's actually more accurate what this verse is saying is that not only is God eternal, that is, not only is God the one who's able to say, I am, I was, I am, I will be. In other words, God has no beginning, God has no end. There is no such thing as a moment or time when God does not exist. But Peter here is saying, and the Bible teaches much more than just mere eternality, What Peter is saying here is that God does not relate to time the same way that we do. Don't let that escape your notice. 
So much of our trouble with false teaching and confusion stems from, arises from, our tendency to transfer in our thinking about God what we are like. So much of our problem so often is we assume God is like us. We assume God is made in our image instead of the other way around. We are creatures of time. We are within time. And there is some debate, but my personal conviction is that even when we are resurrected and with the Lord, we will still be, because we will be creatures, glorified, yes, but there will be a new heavens and new earth, we will still be within the fixed reality of space and time. Not so with God. God is the creator of time. Time did not exist with God in eternity past. God is the creator of time. And this is where our minds start to come up short. And that's good because God is beyond ultimately our comprehension. We can know him truly, but we cannot know God comprehensively. That's the majesty of his being, of who he is. And so he is the creator of time and space and not subject himself to time or space. In Psalm 90, the psalmist says, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Just right there, that God is God in all of everlasting to everlasting. He's not passing through in a linear time fashion. God is omnipresent. We know in the Bible, meaning he is in all places at all times because of who he is. God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things perfectly, exhaustively. There's nothing that God can learn or you can inform God of. And God, God is omnitemporal. In other words, there is not a moment in time where God is not God there. That'll blow your mind. He is, after all, as he revealed himself to Moses, I am. His very name in the Old Testament in Hebrew, Yahweh, I am or I will be who I will be. You cannot find a moment where God is not God. And more than that, all of time is open to God as though it were present. Because God in all of his fullness is there in all of his fullness. He sees all things. The entire span of eternity is laid open before him. He does not pass through time. He he does not experience waiting as we experience waiting. It's incredible. It's in part, this this line of thinking, by the way, is is a rich line of, of meditation to think about. Again, you have multiple scriptures that God is the Alpha and Omega. God is the everlasting God. There's no lack of clarity in the Bible that God is eternal. 
But the fact that he is not subject to time and does not pass through it, but that to him a thousand years is like a day because it's, it's right there. You can, you can see it, this, the span of that thousand years. It's, it's, it's right there to him. And a, a day is like a thousand years because he is there in that day. Not, not trapped, not caught. He is God. He is omnipotent. He is above and over all things, including time. This is the mystery of, of the wonder, for example, of God's salvation. He loved us before the creation of time somehow. He sees you as a believer before even the foundation of the world in Ephesians 1, we learn. He sees you now and he sees you as you will be in the eternal kingdom of his glorified son. And this will help us understand some of God's dealings with his people is that he sees you in Christ. He sees you chosen in Christ. He sees you as one for whom Christ died. He sees you united by faith with Christ and you are he sees you in that light. Oh, yes, he knows who you and I are right now. And yes, we can disappoint him on a day and displease him. Oh, yes. But God loves his people in part because he sees them as they are from eternity past to eternity future. He knows you as you will be. And that's a very encouraging thought. I find that very encouraging. It also explains part of God's judgment. People wonder sometimes about the eternality of hell. Actually, increasingly people don't wonder at it. They just dismiss it, including the evangelical church. We saw some time back, I preached a particular sermon on the doctrine of hell. And one of the reasons why hell is eternal, the experience of hell for unbelievers, unbelievers and those who who refuse the gospel and sin against God is because sin by nature is against God who is eternal and of infinite value. And so you can't pay that moral bill in a few days or months or years. For God to be just, the penalty is exact to the nature of the offense. And the offense of any sinner And my sin and your sin is against an infinitely holy God. And that's one of the reasons why hell is eternal. Another reason that hell is eternal is that the deeds of the wicked, not covered by the blood of Christ, are ever present before the God who is in all places all times, all that he is. And so a million years could have passed in hell. But for God, the deeds, I'll use a Hitler, because you can all identify with that, are, are right there before God, before his eyes. And so the fires of judgment of hell for one like Hitler is stoked by the reality that God, who is all that he is in all time, the sin is there before him. And it's not just Hitler. If you're apart from Christ, 
and your sins are not covered by the blood of Christ, your sins, Hebrews 10 tells us, are exposed before the one with whom we all must do or deal with. Ever before him. You forget, I forget. Some, some particularly bad sins maybe we don't forget, but we don't remember the lies, the lustful looks, the mean words, the lack of love or service, the disobedience, and so forth and so on. We can't remember all of our sins because there's so many we don't have the capacity. God has no such problem. And not only can he remember them, they are before him because God does not pass through time like you do. And so your sins, if you are apart from God and from Christ, are ever before him. And you must this morning trust in Jesus Christ and be saved from the judgment of God due your sin. Do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. So yes, it's been almost 2,000 years since Christ died, buried, was raised, and ascended. Yes, it's almost been 2,000 years since the angels said to the apostles looking up in the sky as, as Christ ascended that they told the apostles that Jesus would return in the same way as, if, as he ascended. In other words, they affirmed that Jesus will <clears throat> return bodily to this earth. But 2,000 years, though a long time to us, is really but two days to God. Don't let that fact escape your notice. And also consider that even at 2,000 years, I wonder if some of you are discouraged by that. I mean, we all long for the coming of Christ. If you're a believer, <clears throat> you, you with the Apostle Paul say, Maranatha, oh Lord, come quickly. That is the godly longing of every true Christian. But Satan may try to tempt you. Others may try to tempt you to think, well, it's 2,000 years. It was a lot longer than that between the time when in Genesis 3, God promised to Eve that one of her seed, her descendant, would crush the certain serpent Satan's head. It was a lot longer than 2,000 years between that promise in Genesis 3.15, the first word of gospel in the Bible, to the coming of Christ the first time. You can debate how long you think it was. A lot of, you know, was it 5,000 years? Was it I'm not talking about that. All I'm pointing out is it was a lot longer between that gospel promise and when the son, the descendant of Eve, actually came. Abraham lived a millennia and a half before the coming of Christ. So 2,000 years, we are well within the framework. And even if Christ should not come for another 2,000 years, we should not ever, God's people should never doubt the certainty of his promise. And by the way, I don't think it'll be another 2,000 years. But no man knows the hour. So, we need to consider the eternality or the omnitemporality of God. And omnitemporality meaning that 
all time is God is present there. There is no time where God is not. God is eternal. Fifthly, this morning, verse 9, what's another reason that Pastor Peter is showing us that we should dismiss this mockery of the promise of Christ's second coming? Why should we hold fast and hold on to the certainty of his coming? And, and how do we explain the delay? How do we understand that? And Pastor Peter helps us in verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, it's another reference to his eternality, his timing. He's not delaying. That happens with us sometimes. We forget. Things come up. We get sick, so we can't fulfill our promise or our word. We run out of funds unexpectedly and we're not able to meet our obligation that can happen to us any number of things can happen to us where whereby what we said we would do somehow is not fulfilled but not so with the lord so so there must be a reason the delay is not because of any lack of ability in god not because of any character flaw in god then what is it peter tells us Verse 9, he is not slow, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Fifthly, the saving heart and purpose of the Lord. This is the fifth reason or we should trust in the second coming of Christ. This is the fifth reason truth that undermines the mockery of the false teachers. The delay or seeming delay expresses not the indolence or the laziness or the inability of the Lord, but instead his saving heart and purpose, his saving heart and purpose. This time period we are in is a time in which God is saving men and women from the wrath and judgment to come. God is enduring the wickedness of this present age. And he is patiently waiting. And I understand what is waiting for God. I don't know exactly. But he does in some way or form wait and endure. And what is he waiting for? Verse 9. He's waiting for for all to come to repentance. He's waiting patiently for all his people to come to him in repentance and faith. We know from the rest of the Bible, God's not going to wait until every single person is saved because not every single person is saved. In fact, Jesus is very clear that, relatively speaking, very few are saved. And there's a debate that rages perennially around verse 9 as to whether this verse is speaking of God's intention towards all men and women without exception or whether it speaks specifically of the elect, those that God has called and chosen, Peter talks about, First Peter and Second Peter, 
those who will be saved. And while that debate about verse 9 is important, and, and I'll share with you in a moment where I stand, and you won't be surprised, it's what our church teaches, but I just want to point out that that's not the burden of the text in verse 9. <laughs> it's not a, the burden of verse 9 is not to wage into a perennial debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. And <clears throat> we make more of it. I understand why the debate's there, but I just want you to notice that the plain meaning of the text is right on the surface, that part of the explanation for why God, from our perspective, is delaying in sending his son back is because he has a heart to save men and women from the wrath to come. That's clear, that's plain, that's the emphasis of the text. It's the heart of God, and it is the heart of God. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God is speaking to rebellious Israel. Certainly, they're not righteous at this point. He's calling them to to repentance, and he says, God says to them, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, or the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, why will you then die, O house of Israel? So it's, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does put to death the wicked, and he does judge the wicked. But we're learning here about the nature of God, the God of the Bible. He's not this sadistic, cruel, un- unwieldy God like the pagan gods of old. He is truly loving. He is truly kind. He is truly compassionate. He is abounding in mercy. He doesn't get his kicks out of the death and judgment of the wicked. His desire is that men and women repent, turn, and live. That's clearly taught in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, and it is reinforced here in 2 Peter 3, Verse 9, there's no question about the inclination of the heart of God. You say then, well, then why isn't everybody saved? That's a good question, and that's not the purpose of, of the message this morning. But how is it that God, in some sense, does not take death, pleasure in the death of the wicked, and yet puts to death the wicked? And there are those who say, see, God is inconsistent. That's utter foolishness. Think about, think about you and, and me. You know what it is to desire something, truly, to wish something because of an expression of your heart, and at the one and same time have another desire that is also good, that overrules the first. If you're a loving parent, this is true every single time you discipline. Well, maybe not every single time. Most times you discipline. If you're a loving parent, you don't, I mean, you don't get any kicks out of disciplining your little son or daughter, your little boy or girl. 
you don't want you don't want to you truly don't want to we joke about you know that line this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you and and when we're kids we think yeah right <laughs> i seriously doubt that but we, it's true. If you love your child, a lot of parents, you know this. You, you love your child. They're being defiant, disobedient. You know, according to the scriptures, that if you love them and you want to train them, you must discipline them. So, so you must do something that displeases them, whether it be a little spanking or it be withholding from them some privilege, whatever it is. You, you don't want to because you love them. And that's true. And you want to because you love them. Because you have a higher purpose, which is the honor of God, the glory of God, and the formation of your little boy or girl. Church discipline. When a professing Christian lives in obvious, wanton, open defiance of God and his law, lives in continual sin... And that person is lovingly approached, according to Matthew 18, the instructions of Jesus, and, and time, and that person is called to repentance, and it becomes clear that there's not going to be any repentance. When the church gathers to obey Jesus' words in Matthew 18 and remove that individual from the church, the church doesn't want to remove the person. We love the individual We don't desire that. We desire their repentance. We desire that they be in the church and we desire to honor the Lord Jesus Christ so that his church is not a joke. And so we remove the person from the church according to Jesus' words in Matthew 18. So I'm just, maybe those are a poor few few poor illustrations, but you and I have the ability in our finite littleness to wish or desire something truly and to also will something else and it's not opposed and it doesn't mean we're schizophrenic it actually means we're made in the image of God so if that's true of little us then we should be very slow to start accusing God and say, well, if you want all men to come to repentance, then if you're consistent, you'll save everybody. When you join that line of reasoning, you step right in line behind the devil and see how it goes. You're impugning the character of God and you're speaking foolishness. God is good. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And... He does desire that men and women come to repentance. And quickly here, I think this text is when, when Peter says, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I think there are certain indicators in the immediate context that Peter is talking about the elect. Those God has chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. Notice just quickly. In, this, in the very verse, verse 9, God is patient towards who? You. Who's the you there? These are the, the you are these believers in, back in chapter 1, verse 1, who have received a faith of the same kind. So Peter's addressing believers. He's addressing the elect. By the way, that's a biblical word. Uh, Puritans didn't come up with it. 
Um, so it's a biblical word, and it's a reality that God chooses some in his mercy to be saved. And so Peter is addressing them. He's addressing the elect and chosen. He's patient towards you. In verse 10 of chapter 1, God chooses and calls the believers. In chapter 2, verse 9, then we see some examples, because this is not an unqualified statement, verse 9. If you want to expand it to include everyone without exception, we're going to have some problems within the letter itself, because over in chapter 2, verse 9, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Which is it? Does he desire their judgment or does he desire uh, their repentance? Well, all I'm pointing out to you there is read verse 9 in the context of the letter. And it's clear over in chapter 2, verse 9, that in particular these false teachers, um, they have gone to the point where apparently God has hardened their hearts and God is actually reserving judgment for them. So God has gone beyond the point of desiring their repentance. Verse chapter 2 verse 17. God has reserved black darkness for them. These are springs without water, mist driven by storm, for whom black darkness has been reserved. So just read individual verses in the context of their immediate surroundings. So the Lord has a purpose in his timing, to sum up. The Lord has a purpose in his timing and his appointed time for the return of his son. And that purpose is the salvation of sinners saved and called by his grace to save all those that he has chosen to give as a love gift to his son. Turn over to John chapter 6 with me as we come to a close. John chapter 6. Verse 37. There Jesus said, All that the Father gives me. Now just pause there. It's clear in the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of Jesus, that the all that the Father has given him is not the all, every man and woman without exception. They're a group of people not distinguishable by any merit of their own, not by any kind of wits or understanding. They're certainly not any righteous inherently than any other sinner. It is all of grace. That's why these truths are often referred to as the doctrines of grace. To be elect, to be chosen, is no badge of pride. It's the exact opposite. It's to know that you are a damned sinner like any other sinner, except that in his unfathomable mercy and kindness, God chose to send someone to tell you the gospel. God chose by his spirit to regenerate your heart and grant you saving faith and repentance through faith in his son. Jesus said, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's no question. God's salvation plan is 
is not a, a prospect. It's not a gamble. It's not a mere hope. It's a determined sovereign plan. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him, the Father who sent me, says Jesus, that of all that he has given me, that is all the men and women in every age that the Father has given him, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The saving purpose of God is an explanation for the delay. This helps us because we long for the coming of Jesus. We long for the ending of these evil and wicked days. But when we start thinking about the reality that God is calling to himself all those whom he has given as a love gift to his son, that helps us endure and understand God has a purpose in this present age. And it's a saving purpose that reflects the nature of his heart for sinners. Well, a final reason we'll look at next Sunday morning is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Uh, These false teachers think it's never going to come. Peter says it's going to come like a thief when you don't expect it. And you want to count on it. But in closing... The whole emphasis of this passage is that we as believers would live in a certain way. Not merely that we would know certain facts, but verse 11, that we would be people who conduct ourselves in holiness and godliness. That we be found, verse 14, in Christ, in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard, verse 15, the patience of our Lord as salvation. We endure, we wait for the Lord eagerly, we don't give up, and we conduct ourselves carefully in this time in fear of the Lord because we believe the words spoken beforehand by the prophets and by the apostles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Dear believer, dear little lamb, keep believing, keep holding on, keep living for Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray you'd help us to do that. And in an age in which the mocking of the mockers is is becoming so loud that it's hard sometimes to think straight, as those who believe in the coming of Christ and the judgment of God are increasingly fewer, we pray that we would be found upon among those who humbly hold fast to what you've declared and promised in your word. And in the meantime, help us to live humbly, sincerely for the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.